is a podcast from Concern Worldwide, bringing you stories from some of the 25 countries we work in as humanitarians, the challenges communities are facing, some of the solutions and other bits in between. To find out more about Concern, visit concern.net. Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Pod Worldwide. Ahead of COP28 at the end of November, the UN's annual climate change conference, climate is the focus of much of this episode. We learn what tools help warn communities in Bangladesh about impending floods. We chat to Concern's new youth climate ambassador, what she hopes to bring to the role and what to say to climate change deniers. It's okay to be afraid of what's happening, but it's important to not deny the fact that it's happening either because there's no progress being implemented then because we think that it's something that we can solve later on. And we hear from Women of Concern 2023 honoree Ifra Ahmed, campaigner and activist against female genital mutilation. Talking about my own personal experience and how I wanted young girls who are born in this country to be safe because, you know, they don't deserve to go through what I have been through. I'm your host, Ailish Staunton. Thanks to flu, cold, lurgy season, this episode has been a little delayed. Apologies if you've been eagerly awaiting episode five. No, maybe just my ma'am then. Hi, ma'am. Anyway, let's get started. First up, our regular slot, Items I Can't Do My Job Without, where we hear from concerned colleagues around the world on what object, big and small, is essential to their job. I spoke to concerns of Sari Begum in Bangladesh, a country that is at the front line of the realities of climate change and is at high risk of flooding with serious financial and humanitarian costs. Afsari explained what tool used in communities at risk helps them stay safe and prepare for impending floods. So I'm here with Afsari. So Afsari, introduce yourself and what is your job with concern in Bangladesh, please? Thank you, Alice. I'm Afsari. I'm working as a program manager here in Bangladesh. At the moment, I'm leading the Zurich and Shufal project. The project is working to support the communities who are living in uh, flood-prone areas, especially like early warning and early action. And along with that, we also support the communities to adapt with some technologies, for example, like flood resilience varieties of crops or vegetables. And I suppose for people who might know a lot about Bangladesh, flooding is is a serious issue there and it's a regular problem. Yes. If I introduce Bangladesh, the first thing will come in that it is a country with a number of big rivers and small rivers. And people who are poor and extreme poor, they are actually living mostly in the floodplain areas and they face or get exposed to the flooding every year. The other reason that people are living near the river is because it supports the agricultural activity, agricultural cultivation. And I suppose one of the, the important things to do that when there is a threat of flooding from rivers is to give people a warning. So there's an item that starts that process that that's very important to that. What is that item? So getting the accurate and reliable data, that is a very, very important uh, component for accurate forecast or early warning. Bangladesh government, they have their own stations from where they actually have the data, regular data on the water level. But the number of stations that we have at the moment, that is not adequate. So we support the communities to have a ruler in the rivers. It has a scientific calculations in this landscape or in this land level, what would the exact danger level would be? 
Okay. And so the ruler, there's a green and then there's red. It's like kind of a traffic light. Yes. Would that be that yes. once it reaches red? That's the danger level. There are volunteers who has been actually trained that how to actually read that scale and how to collect the information and who to pass it. So when would the early warning start? Would that start when that gets to red or would it be when it gets to yellow? Or We don't wait until the water level goes up to the danger level. We actually know like from the 15 days forecast what we can expect in next 10 days or next 15 days. We see that yellow level or green level, that means okay, you are still safe. When it's like yellow okay, we are maybe, it's time to actually take the actions. So before it goes to the, reaches up to the red level, the alert actually starts well ahead so that people can really have a, enough lead time for the, taking the preparations. Then through voice calls, we actually send the alert messages to the community people. With the alert, there is also like advisories. That means what to do after getting that alert. For example, if I'm like agricultural farmer, this is don't spread the, fertilizer or don't do the plantation at the moment because there's a forecast of the heavy rain. This is not the only channel for disseminating the early warning. So we use multiple channels. For example, we have Union Disaster Management Committee, we have community groups, we have volunteers. So they all are actually trained and they all know that when they get the uh, any forecast with the advisories, they take it to the community level. Bangladesh, as you explained, is flooding was probably always an issue there, but has it become more severe in recent years? Flooding is not only a like curse for us, it is also blessings for us because our overall economy depends on the agriculture activities. But what is problematic for us at the moment is the number of the flooding event, the severity of the flooding event. So that is actually a big problem because people knew even earlier that, okay, every year we'll face the flooding. They knew what to do or at least they manage. But now it is very difficult for them to understand that how many times they will face the flooding situation. They are just getting up again. There is a flooding and that is actually putting people in a more vulnerable situations and really elevating the, their sufferings and it is hampering everything. The intensity and the more frequency be related to climate change and climate events. As we are hearing every time that the temperature is increasing, there's a global warming. So it is not happening naturally. Certainly there will be certain level of rise of the temperature, but the way, the speed we are seeing the increase of the temperature, the speed we are seeing this global warming, that is not actually an acceptable way it, it is actually happening. And uh, it also seems sometimes that maybe we are not actually very fair to the nature. Maybe we are not utilizing the nature the way we should and we're not taking care of the nature. And it's kind of coming back to us, maybe with anger, with frustration, with annoyance that, yes, you should stop doing it. But the issue is, are we really listening? Thanks to Afsari. And if you want to find out more about Concerns Work in Bangladesh or our Climate Smart and Resilience projects, you can find out more information on the Concern website, concern.net. Dervla Richardson, Concern's new Youth Climate Ambassador, took up the role in the last couple of months and it was straight to it for the Cork woman, attending the African Union Climate Summit in Nairobi and visiting some of Concern's climate adaptation projects in Tukurna in northern Kenya. She spoke to Concern's Emma Kelly, who travelled with her, about that trip and what she hopes to bring to the role. 
for the people who are listening who don't know you, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? So I'm uh, this year's uh, Concerns Youth Climate Ambassador. I'm a climate justice advocate with Fridays for Future and I'm also the environmental uh, representative on the Students' Union UCC where I study international development. So I'm um, very excited to be taking on the role this year as well. And what got you into climate justice and climate action? I think it kind of, it started when I was um, maybe 14 or 15 and I learned about uh, fast fashion. I kind of started with swap shops and stuff like that. And that was kind of what piqued my interest in the beginning. But it was kind of from a humanitarian angle at first, because I was horrified by how clothes were being made and how people were being treated. And it was kind of from that, that I learned more about the environmental impacts. And then that became part of the my focus as well as um I suppose, just in climate advocacy and advocating just for a better world for all of us, I guess. Your role got off to a flying start. Um, You went to Kenya with concern to firstly go to the Africa Climate Summit and then to go see some of our programmes in action in Turkana. Tell me what that experience was like. So um, firstly, the Climate Summit in itself, it was really good, I think, to, to be there and to hear collectively African voices. And I suppose the point of the African Summit was to try and get a collective voice to use a cop of what Africa needs going forward in terms of adaptation finance to deal with the climate crisis. Um, now, the I suppose the conference itself was just brilliant because it was so accessible. Um, I find a lot of the times with like conferences like these, they'd use a lot of jargon and it's very difficult to understand. But this, it was very accessible, which I, I thought was great. And then following that, we went to Northern Turkana, where um, there's a lot of climate smart agriculture projects that have been implemented by Concern and other organisations. That was absolutely just fantastic to see just people's resilience in face of the climate crisis. I suppose just for anyone listening who isn't familiar with the area, it um, hadn't rained in two years and there was no moisture at all in the soil. So uh, a lot of the farmers lost like 75% of their livestock, which was incredibly challenging because um, not only did they no longer have a job to do, they like they might not have had money to feed their family or food to feed their family. These communities were just absolutely just so incredible because they knew exactly what they needed. Like, concern was just supporting them in what they were already doing and they're not asking for much either they're just asking to be able to continue living the way that they are now so a lot of those people would have been like traditional pastoralists and um, because of the way the climate crisis has gone they can't actually do that anymore so a lot of them kind of lost their sense of purpose and they were they're very honest with us about that and about navigating those feelings and like I suppose trying to adapt themselves You got to speak to a lot of the concerned staff and a lot of people in these communities. Was there anything in particular that you took home or that really stuck with you? The gravity of the situation kind of really stuck with me. Like every single person who we met while we were there is working so hard, like every single day. And it isn't something that is going to get easier, unfortunately. And obviously, it's great to see the improvements that have been made. But I think that my biggest takeaway from it is that it is going to get worse and just so incredibly admirable of all the people who are there on the ground every day and just to the work that they're putting in and then seeing just the differences over the years of how how much the work has helped the people and the communities living there. It's good to see because a lot of the time with the climate crisis, everything, it's very bleak. So it's good to see that there there is some hope in it and that people are getting the help that they need. Well, definitely in Turkana anyway.
And going forward with your role as Youth Climate Ambassador, what are you looking forward to the most? I think I'm looking most forward to just engaging with youth, I suppose, on things that they can do themselves. Because a lot of the time people think of the climate crisis and it's, it's very overwhelming and they don't know where to begin and they think that they can't do anything. I don't think that's true. I think that everyone everyone can do something. And I know it might, you know, I suppose, be said a lot, but like no matter how small the action that you're taking is, it's I just like I think it's so important to just do the best that you can with what you have. That might not look the same as someone else, but that that's okay. There are an awful lot of people who still say that either climate change isn't real or that humans aren't causing climate change, that this is just something that happens. What would you say to somebody who is a climate change denier? So the first thing that I'd say to that is just in reference to the AU Climate Summit. Not a single person there was denying the fact that climate crisis was happening. And this is because those are people who every single day see the effects of climate change. And they were actually kind of shocked. I remember mentioned it to a man who was there and he was like, what? There's people who deny climate change? How, how does anyone do that? It's a very privileged thing to be able to say, no, I don't believe in it. No, this doesn't affect me. But I think a lot of the time that also does come out of fear. I think people are very afraid of kind of accepting that this is something that we did. It's okay to be afraid of what's happening, but um, it's important to not deny the fact that it's happening either because when people go into denial is when it gets worse because there's no progress being implemented then because we think that it's something that we can solve later on. But it is a problem now, so it's something that needs to be addressed and it's only going to get worse if we deny it. Dervila Richardson concerns Youth Climate Ambassador, speaking there to Emma Kelly. And finally, we've taken a break this episode from our How Much Do You Know quiz to hear instead from Concern Woman of the Year 2023, Ifra Ahmed. Ifra is an Irish Somali activist who has dedicated her life to campaigning against female genital mutilation, a practice that can have serious health implications for women, such as severe bleeding, problems urinating, cysts, infections, as well as complications in childbirth and increased risk of newborn deaths. Having undergone the procedure herself as a young girl, Ifra was instrumental in the passing of legislation banning FGM in Ireland, introduced in 2012. She explained to an audience at the Women of Concern event. Why? The female genital mutilation law was in the Irish Parliament six years before I landed in Ireland, and I heard that there was a law, but it's, it not has been passed. So I had a conversation with everyone, and Joe Costello, who was a TD, and then I met with Joe, and I told he was, you know, the first politician I can push and you know talk to and communicate and going to the parliament front door and going to Joe Costello, who every Saturday I go to uh, his clinic. And he just looked at me and said, you back again? I said, yes, Joe, I am, I'm back again. During the campaign, it was amazing the amount of people get involved and talking about my own personal experience and how I wanted young girls who are born in this country to be safe. Because, you know, they are born in this country and they don't deserve to go through what I have been through. IFRA has campaigned relentlessly to change attitudes towards FGM in Somalia, where 98% of women and girls have undergone the practice through the IFRA Foundation. Going back to Somalia was the most difficult things I would ever feel and face. 
I became an Irish citizen in 2013. And soon after, I decided to go back to Somalia. I said, I want to go back to the community I left and say what I can do. I went back to Somalia and I sit with the women's group from beginning and talking to the women group. First thing they say is that go back to your country. So I sit, I cried, I feel that I don't know uh, where I belong to because, you know, I just wanted to raise awareness and talk to the community, but, you know, they telling me to go back. You know, it's so emotional for different reasons for me. Now I have a daughter, she's three and a half. In 2020, we set up a campaign called the Dear Daughter. Female genital mutilation is a human rights violation. It has a lot of different health consequences. But still mother thinking to cut her own daughter, all the things she has been through, she has to really make a change with her own daughter to make a pledge. So it's very simple. She talks about everything she has been through and she says, I'm pledging you to have an education you deserve and free from female genital mutilation. So the campaign has reached now over 80,000 pledges in Somalia. While initially IFRA's efforts were met with hostility among some in Somalia, attitudes have changed, especially with young people. And you know, Somalia, 75% are young people and everyone have a smartphone and they're on social media and all that. There was a time I would get on social media, people abusing, you know, saying bad messages, where now people, young people see me as a role model. And that shows, you know, the powerful of the power shifted that's happening in Somalia. Ifra has had a long relationship with concern as far back as to when she first returned to Somalia in 2014. First time when I went to Somalia, the first thing I was thinking to see was concern in Somalia. So I met with, you know, uh, things concern were doing that time. Now, in 2023, going back, I seen a lot have been shifted and changed. Meeting women who have been benefited from macro financial, who has started their own businesses, who are doing really well in their own way, who are independent financially. I look at them when they were talking, because I visited in the center, they were talking about how they sell, how they trust each other. They even have schools, they teach uh, mathematics. I look at them and I say, wow, these women are the greatest women to bring them on board to uh, their daughter because, you know, they are very strong, they have done themselves well. They ask me, where are you from? I say, I'm from Ireland. And they were like, oh, thank you, Ireland is a great country. They support us. Even if I ask where Ireland is, they might not even know where it's located. <laughs> but it was good that they felt that, you know, Ireland was a country that actually support them. Congratulations to Ifra on being named Women of Concern Honoree 2023. She's in good company with previous honorees, including Irish Ambassador to the US and former Ambassador to the United Nations, Geraldine Byrne-Nason, and activist and human rights defender, Professor Monica McWilliams. The podcast team would love to hear who you think would make a good Women of Concern honoree in 2024. You can email us at podworldwide at concern.net or you can send a voice note via WhatsApp to an Irish number 085-872-0720. If you're under 18, don't forget to CC in your guardian if emailing or message from their phone, once you have their permission, of course.
And that's it for this episode of Pod Worldwide. Thank you so much for taking the time and listening to it. We'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback. You can get in touch via email to podworldwide at concern.net. Don't forget to subscribe and please give Pod Worldwide a review on whatever platform you listen to it on. It really helps grow our audience. We'll be doing it all again next month. Until then, thanks to all our guests for joining us and to all the production team.